Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Hear now God's Word. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And thus far, the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Our church building is located at 340 Northeast Stallings Drive in Nacogdoches, Texas. But the real church building extends far beyond that. It reaches to your house. Because our homes are outposts of the local church, which is but an outpost of the kingdom of God. So when we leave this location and head to our homes, The church goes with us. So if someone were to ask, how is the health of your church? The true answer to that question would have to include the health of our marriages and our families. From the beginning, with Adam and Eve, the Bible is a book about families. Everyone is a member of a family at some level, including the larger family we call the church. Moreover, families play a central role in God's work of dominion and redemption, in that the family is where the primary work of evangelism, instruction, and nurture take place, or it's where it should take place. In Genesis 18, 17 through 19, We read, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, since Abraham shall surely, certainly become a great nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he had spoken to him. You know, sometimes people send their children to a Christian school and assume that they have done all they need to do regarding their child's education when they drop them off at the door. But that's not true. And the same is true with many in how many view the local church. They assume that since they go to church and hear lessons and sermons that That is sufficient for what it takes to be a healthy Christian. But that's not true either. The church is here to help you, by way of the liturgy, for example, to shape good habits. An hour and a half of teaching and preaching each week is never enough. So if you're expecting the lessons and sermons at church to feed you all that you need... 
then I can tell you right now, you are malnourished. In addition, the church provides communion and fellowship and prayer and opportunities to serve and much more. But that is so that you can export that to your house and beyond. When God created man in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures, he told him to be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve. It was a mandate to fill the earth with godly people who would then produce a godly culture which would glorify God. That's what godly people do. That goal wasn't to multiply misery and to produce or to populate hell. The introduction of sin fouled the planet. You talk about the ultimate environmental problem. That's it. It made the world green okay. Green with envy. Sin corrupted the culture. And soon thereafter, God promised a Redeemer. This redemptive work unfolded throughout the Old Testament. So the Old Testament closes, our Old Testament closes with Malachi, which remind, uh, with reminders that God, among other things, wants this. So you got the picture? All the history of the Old Testament, now we're coming to a close in anticipation of the coming Savior. There's going to be a gap of about 400 years. What does God want? Husbands to be devoted to their wives. Families that produce godly children. And the hearts of fathers and children that are turned toward one another. And then he said, if that's the case, he would prevent the land, the culture, from being smitten with a curse. If those things happen. And then the New Testament opens with John the Baptist fulfilling the prophecy in the book of Malachi. Very, uh, the angel quotes to Zechariah, John's father, from this very passage, or, or from the book of Malachi, saying that John was that promised prophet that would come and prepare the way for the Lord and for the Savior who would accomplish this through the Gospel. And so in the book of Malachi, God is bringing a covenant lawsuit against His people for their unfaithfulness to their covenant with Him. They've they've not been doing these things. And so He's bringing charges against them. You're not being faithful to your families, to your wives. You're not faithfully worshiping Me. You're robbing Me of tithes. You're offering blemished sacrifices. And so there are numerous places where that unfaithfulness is evident Again, including their worship and their giving. But one of the main places where their unfaithfulness is manifest is in their family. The people came to church, to the altar. And uh, and they were depressed and sad, and so they covered the altar with tears. Life is so hard. And they wanted God to make them feel better, or at least they wanted to feel better about themselves for having gone to church, and feel better about themselves for having gone to church. But God says that He will not regard their offering because it is given in a disingenuous way. 
the goodwill is missing. You see, God doesn't just see them, and He doesn't just see us at church. He also sees what's going on in their marriages, and in their homes, and with their children, as He does us. And so the people seem surprised to hear this from God, and so they ask, What are you talking about? Who, me? And God says that He knows that they are not keeping the marriage covenant. There is unfaithfulness in the home. And this could be uh, unfaithfulness in any number of forms, including sexual unfaithfulness. And God describes this as treachery. Very strong word here. It can be translated unfaithfulness. God says that He Himself is a witness to it. Remember, God is omnipresent. We should all remember that simple children's catechisms. Can you see God? No, but He can always see me. Always. All those little snide remarks and things that happen at home among family. God is there. And so... Here's where the connection between church and her worship comes in with family as an extension of that. Remember, we're dealing with our foundations of the church. We've been talking about the church and about worship. And now we're kind of moving out from the local church, the gathering for public worship, out to our homes where this is an extension of the church. Marriage is a spiritual act, or it should be, where God makes husband and wife one flesh and gives them His Spirit. And He did this, why? The text tells us. He he did this so that you would give Him godly offspring. Not just offspring, godly offspring. And this fits with the original creation mandate in Genesis 1 Verses 26 through 28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, having dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So one of the primary purposes of the family was to fill the earth with God's image bearers who would then go forth and glorify Him. Magnify Him. We've been talking about this with music, right? Singing is a glorified version of speech. Speech is on the, on the one end, uh, just talking, but then as we move up and we sing, it becomes more glorious, more grand. And that's what we're to do with all of our lives, with all of the earth. Everything is to be taken and glorified to glorify God. The redeemed family, the Christian family, your family, has been purchased back from sin and bondage in order to fulfill the creation mandate to give God the God, to give God the godly offspring that He originally intended. This is why you, as Christian people, have families. It's the reason. Therefore, God says, take heed to your spirit. In other words, pay attention to your attitude, to your motivations, and deal faithfully with your wife, your husband, your children. 
The church is here to provide you with a safe haven and a place where you can grow with other believers, not simply so that one day you can go to heaven, but so that you will begin heaven right now here on earth at your house and in your family. This is why you work. This is why you provide and clean and organize and educate and worship. This is why you serve and make love and make up and protect. And this is why you do everything, which is your chief end, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if you are engaged in things that are not in service of this goal, then you're engaged in the wrong things. Just as the activities of the church are all focused on advancing the kingdom of God, so too, since your family is a little church, or an extension of the church, all of your activities must serve the same purpose. Now some of these are more direct than others. Some are direct, some are indirect. But whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it all to the glory of God. Cleaning house, mowing the grass, having taking a break, praying, singing, painting, We can go down the whole list, all of it, to the glory of God. Now, the text declares that God hates divorce. The reason he hates it is because, he says, it covers one's garment with violence. And garments are metaphors for any kind of a covering. And men are especially intended to cover their wives by protecting them. And divorce does the opposite of that. It rips apart a family and leaves it exposed. Everybody gets hurt. It kills a family. Don't do things that will kill your family. Rather than protection, it is a form of violence. Therefore, he says, take heed to your spirit. Look inside. Examine yourself that you do not deal treacherously or unfaithfully. Unfaithfulness of any sort does violence to the covenant. It divides, it separates, which is another way of saying it kills. Now, let's talk a bit about the first work of the Gospel. In Matthew 10, 34-38, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And so on the face of it, This doesn't sound like a very family-friendly program, does it? If there is to be redemption, if there is to be recovery from the fall, then a radical break from from the fallen way of doing things has to occur. So the Savior lays His claim on us first, and then He calls us to walk away from everything and everyone in order to follow Him, to get our priorities straight, 
He even initially separates us from our families so that a new kind of family can emerge. Redeemed families who will fill the earth with a new humanity with godly children. The church, the body of Christ, is the starting place of redemption. From there, from Christ, we are sent out to serve Him. From there, we are sent back to our families to establish outpost of the church. And thus we need families that are oriented first and foremost toward Christ and his body. Don't separate those in your mind. There's not Jesus over here and the church over here. The church is the body of Christ. This is this is not just poetry. This is reality. And I think we we try to we become dualistic when we start trying to separate these things. Oh, well, I, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. Jesus died for the church. The church is his bride. The church is his body. If you're not part of the church, and I mean totally connected, integral part of the life-giving church, then you can't be in Christ. That's, that's one and the same thing. And it's not the church floating around in the air up there. It's the real-life church. With real people. We need church friendly families. Then and only then can we expect to see our families truly transform. Transform men and women, transform families, and ultimately a transformed world. People come in all kinds of conditions, with all kinds of baggage. Sin is the destroyer of lives, but the work of the church does not stop with acceptance. The work of redemption is about changing people. We don't get to stay the way we are. All things have become new. And so it's important for us to see the primacy of the church over ourselves and our families. When our priorities are straight. When Jesus is indeed Lord, then his followers will see a transformation. A family culture will emerge that will truly be salt and light in a rotting and dark world. Therefore, one of the main ways the church can impact the world is through our families. We're at the church building for a few hours each week. But this isn't generally where the world sees us. They may drive by and see our cars parked out there. But we are the church 24-7, wherever we are, especially at our homes. And this is what people actually see. The reputation of the church is tied to your reputation. Your behavior at school and at work have a direct impact on the church. And the church is here to show the world Jesus. Just as individuals represent their families, and uh, families and individuals represent the church all the time. Hopefully, we put on our Sunday best when we come to church. We know that this is supposed to be a place of loving communion, and so even if we have to fake it a little bit, um, we can at least be cordial to one another on a Sunday morning, right? When we gather... I have yet to see a fight break out at the communion table. I'm sure it's probably happened somewhere, but in 35 years I haven't seen it happen. 
But that same probably cannot be said about the table at your house, right? Or other places at your house. The article I included today with your order of worship from Robert Capon, uh, I thought illustrated that in a very lovely way, where he talks about order being almost coming together, the new Jerusalem, and then somebody kicks their sister and things begin to fall apart. Uh, So that's the struggle we're in. And so we acknowledge that, but then we continue to work to bring it back together, to bring that glory and that order. At your house, you're still the church. You're still part of the body of Christ. And as such, we are called to love one another and live in real communion. What I want to do is remind you and challenge you to have this perspective of your family. To take seriously your calling in Christ. Shift the subject a little bit. Do, we, do you understand the times that you live in? Do we really understand and do we know what to do in the church and in our families? Where are the deficits? We can all complain, we often do, about the problems in our culture. And are those self-consciously being addressed at your house? For starters, I would suggest that the broader culture clearly lacks leadership and respect and love. Thus, and thus our homes, our, which are outposts of the church, should be pictures of leadership, respect, and love. We tend to think of culture as something that's out there and is having an influence. It's having an influence perhaps on us and our families. And sometimes we think, well, we're going to block the culture. We're going to keep it out. But a culture is found anywhere there's a community of people. And it's through culture that our way of living is transmitted from one generation to another. As Henry Van Til put it, culture is religion externalized, which is another way of saying that our ideas and beliefs have consequences and that these consequences are visible in our communities. We might consider this the practical side of philosophy. It matters what we think. Every idea produces a particular kind of fruit, and every culture is the product of those ideas. However, not only do ideas have consequences, but consequences have ideas. In other words, we can look at the fruit, we can look at it from the other side. When we see a culture and its fruit, which is what we often see first, we must ask, what ideas produce this culture? What is the theology behind what we're seeing? A family is a community, and thus it has a culture too. In fact, it is a culture. Just as the broader culture influences the family culture, likewise family culture influences the other cultures that come in contact with it. The family culture is a reflection of your ideas and beliefs. Now, it's true, of course, uh, some people are better than their beliefs and others are worse than their beliefs. What we say and what we do are often in conflict. But let me say, at the end of the day, what we do, however, is the ultimate reflection of what we really believe. Thus, we can look at the culture of a family... We can see how husband and wife treat each other. 
We can see how the children interact with each other and how they interact with their parents and parents with the kids. We can see all kinds of things and get a picture of what the family's beliefs and values really are. It is therefore essential that we develop self-conscious and distinctively Christian ideas about the family and culture, the family culture. And I'll ask you a rhetorical question. How much have you actually thought about that? What do I want my family to be? What do I want it to look like next year and five years from now? And then back up and say, am I doing the things on a daily basis that are likely to produce that? Because it isn't going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen by osmosis. It's going to happen with a self-conscious application of the grace of God and the love of God and the word of God and prayer and example in that communion of love. And so it's essential that we develop this, 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 uh, this picture. Our own views of a subject are often shaped by a variety of sources. Families we grew up in, friends, media, school, pop culture, church, the Bible, all those kind of thrown in together. We can't easily sort through these influences and separate them because they're often jumbled together. In fact, they are likely blurred in our own minds and create these kind of fuzzy and vague images. Therefore, if we are to learn to think more biblically, we're going to have to begin with a winnowing process by which we evaluate our ideas in the light of sound theology, replacing old ideas with new ones. Inevitably, we will find that we have to adjust our views and cast off many erroneous notions and adopt new and sometimes radical views in their place. It's amazing how sometimes we think, well, get rid of that thing. I can't do that. Yes, you can. If you want to, if it's important enough, Jesus says, cut off your right hand if that's what it takes. Pluck out your eye. I can't do that. Well, then you better figure out some other way to do it then. Because that's how serious it is. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for us to make little tiny adjustments and then perceive them as major. We have often gone one mile in the right direction when, in fact, we need to go a hundred miles. God created man in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures, and man forfeited all of that in rebellion, and so a perverted, twisted man was the result. All kinds of difficulty and misery ensued, with conflicts in the family culture and the broader cultural culture continuing and expanding and multiplying. And in the midst of all the chaos, God sent His Son, the firstborn of a new humanity and a second Adam. This new man, who also had knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures, is the Redeemer of fallen man. He is the model or the image of what we are called to be. He's not just somebody, sometimes I think we think of a Savior as just the guy who is the superhero who swoops down and snatches us off the edge of the cliff and rescues us. No, we're to be His disciples. We're to, we're to look to Him and, and, and recognize that He is the model. He is what we have been called to, to be transformed into. 
so our transformation is our restoration to true humanity that, and that true humanity does not look like the popular images of humanity. In fact, it is likely contrary to much of what we have picked up along the way. Cleaning out the garage. I don't know about you, I did this this summer. Clean, clean, did a lot of cleaning. It is a dreaded task for most of us. There's a lot of junk that we've collected over the years, and much of it just needs to go. But if we want to build something useful, like in my case, if I, want to, I need to clear out a space, I'm going to need some space, some tools, and I'm going to need some plans. And what we need to build a family culture that we can leave to our children and our children's children, we're going to need to build a culture that's going to change the world. As you know, I enjoy woodworking, especially like building furniture. And after I clean out my garage, I always start with a set of plans. I need an image of what the project's going to look like when I'm finished. Sometimes I look at that and I go, I don't think I can do that. It's too complicated. It's hard. I'm not sure I can make that cut. I'm not sure I can build that joint. Many times I, those plans, again, look so complicated, I just don't think I can pull it off. But the project will often uh, require me, much to the chagrin of my wife sometimes, to acquire new tools and develop new word, woodworking skills. How do you curve wood? I sometimes doubt, again, whether I can actually pull it off, and I certainly, I certainly make mistakes along the way. I, I built each of my children, uh, each family got a baby bed, a crib. And my first, the first two, the ships and the booths, picked out a nice mission-style baby bed, which is all straight lines, straight slats. And I made the mistake of asking Kristen, she was the last one to have a child in the, in the, in the group, and uh, pick, pick out a baby bed you like. Well, boy, she picked out one that had curves and uh, all kinds of shapes that I didn't even begin to know how to make. And so you know, it's got, I don't remember, 120 slats that go all the way around a baby bed. And I think before I finally figured out how to do it, I had at least that many on the floor of my garage that were just worthless. They became firewood. Um, and also, you know, I thought, well, I'm never building another one of these again. Though at that point, I could. <laughs> I knew how. So, so you're going to make mistakes. Um, and so, in the end, though, I always say it's almost always harder than I imagined. You know, most things in life that are worth doing are that way. If you knew how hard they were, you probably wouldn't ever do them. Um, but in the end, when the project's finished, I've created an heirloom, something that might be passed on for generations. And so we all have images in our heads of the way things are supposed to be, and over time, we become those images. Again, that's part of what liturgy is supposed to do, is to shape us and form us. And this is why we have to be careful about what goes in, because what goes in eventually comes out. Our mental images are partly and subtly formed from past experiences, our own upbringing and the culture around us, 
taking off the old man, the old images, if you will, and putting on the new man, the new images is essential to our ceasing to be an old man and becoming a new man in Christ. New images can and must be formed by the Word of God. Thus, we are not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. For us, as the new humanity in Jesus Christ, everything has become new. It is essential that we have before our mind's eye a picture of God's ideals. An ideal father. What would that be like? An ideal husband or wife or mother or children or household. What does that look like? These images will be grand, too grand, in fact, at first. We will all fall short of the glory of God. But it is His redemptive work, the work of the Spirit and sanctification, that moves us in the direction of those new images, and, that, and we're going to need to refer to them repeatedly. Now back to my furniture building. When the project looks complicated or overwhelming, I just try to focus on a single piece. But I cannot build that chair, but I can build that one little piece right there. I'm going to figure out how to do that one. I follow the instructions. I can produce one shape, one element that is part of the whole. I still need to see and remember the big picture. In fact, I'm gonna, if I'm ever going to see the project come to completion, I'm going to have to refer to the plans often while focusing on the particular task that's before me. And so I read the directions in their proper order over and over again. I read them until I understand them. Sometimes I read them like, what? That doesn't make sense. Let me read that again. Let me read that again. Sometimes they're hard enough. I've got to get some help. Somebody, I don't, can you explain what they're talking about here? God's Word contains the plans and the directions for building a family culture. It's the church's task to maintain and instruct her members in God's Word and to send her members out the door to their various outposts where they self-consciously apply those lessons day by day. Indeed, it's a grand project with challenges, frustrations, and failures, but also with much help and much hope. We must have strong and self-conscious awareness of the fact that what we are doing at church should impact what we're doing at home, and vice versa. The body of Christ is not, uh, the church is not a slice of the pie. It is the pie. And the family is a slice of the pie. Even within our daily family routines, we are never separated from Christ and His body. Our cooking, our eating and drinking, our conversation, labors, lovemaking, finances, child-rearing, discipline, singing, our resting, our playing, our hospitality, our, pray, our, our reading Scripture, worshiping, all of these are manifestations of the culture of Christ. Not one square inch is to be void of Him. Thus, it's in, the daily context, in this daily context that we take the lessons, that is the theology, doctrine, exhortations of the church, back to our homes where we actually apply what we've learned 
There should be a self-conscious oozing out of the love of God, instruction from his word, and his omnipresence in our family. The family is foundational to this church, to every church. It is God's way of working in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we desire to see your kingdom established more and more in us, first in our lives, as by your grace and spirit our flesh is subdued, and we are more and more conformed to the image of your Son. Second, in our households, that Christ might be all in all, that the men would be men of God, faithful husbands and fathers serving and giving to their families as Christ did to the church, that wives and mothers would be the very picture of the bride of Christ, lovely and gracious toward their husbands and children, that the word of God might not be blasphemed, and that the children would honor their fathers and mothers, for this pleases the Lord and is the very place where young citizens of your kingdom are trained. Lord, help us to be found faithful at our post. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Husbands and wives, you are called in Christ to be one, one in flesh, and one in mission. Men, you are called to cherish your wife and to present her as spotless and without blemish. You're called to serve her, to assist her in sanctification, maturity, and holiness. Like Christ, you're called to love her and lay down your life for her. This means that you are all in as it pertains to your marriage. Titus 2.2, the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. You're not your own. You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You represent Jesus all the time. And wives, you're part of this same mission, and that's why you are in submission. You represent the church all the time and labor to bring respect to your head. You're called to assist your husband in becoming more and more like Christ through prayer, encouragement, and faithfulness. Again, Titus 2, 3 through 5, older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, I know this is completely contrary to the world's views about men and women, but remember, you renounced the world when you declared yourself a follower of Christ. There's no need to apologize for it or feel embarrassed. Joyfully embrace what God has given you. You're not your own. You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Children, you were born for one reason, to glorify God. That is your chief end. You have been blessed to be born into a Christian household, flawed as they may be. You have been given much, and to whom much is given, much is required. God calls you first to honor and obey your parents in the Lord, for this pleases the Lord. And he calls you to be grateful and thankful. And we... We are all the church, and together we come now to renew our commitment to be faithful followers of Christ and to leave this location and head back to our houses where the real work of following him takes place.
Amen. Our Heavenly Father, in man's state of perfection, you purpose that husband and wife should be joined together as one in covenant with each other and with you. Moreover, you commission them to be fruitful and multiply and to exercise dominion over the earth. And even after man's sin invoked your curse and judgment upon all mankind and all of creation, nevertheless, even then, their duty to you remained unchanged. Your gracious plan to redeem sinful man required your people to bring forth godly seed and for the hearts of fathers to be turned toward their children and the hearts of children to be turned toward their fathers. Your covenant blessings are promised to our children and our children's children from those not yet born even unto a thousand generations to all who love you and keep your covenant. Indeed, your will be their, you will be their God and they will be your people. And now, O Lord our God, we do invoke these promises for our marriages and pray your blessings upon our covenant unions. We ask that you would make our households fruitful in every way. Go with us this week and keep us faithful. Help us to live and love and rejoice before you, to trust you, to honor you, to serve you. Bless now our feasting and our resting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.